This is Katie Prejean McGrady, and this is Ave Explores. When I was in middle school, I signed up to participate in a work camp, a summertime work weekend, essentially, where a bunch of middle school and high school students got to sleep on the floor of a gym for a couple of nights. And during the days, we'd go out to different homes and organizations in the community that needed help. It was the first time I ever mowed a lawn. And I distinctly remember when my dad picked me up, I said, Dad, mowing lawns is fun. And He laughs and he said, yeah, that's my favorite chore. You can't have it. Something about that weekend was really eye-opening to me. And it wasn't just the fact that there were people in my own hometown who were living in poverty, something that at 13 years old I didn't really know and hadn't ever really seen. It wasn't even the fact that I got to mow a lawn or I got to hang out with my friends or we got to have Eucharistic adoration in the evening in the church. And There's just something really cool about being in a church at night especially when you're 13 years old and you've never really had much experience with Eucharistic adoration before. Something clicked that weekend as I looked around and saw my friends, many of whom had signed up for the weekend for the same reason I did, to earn our service hours for school. Later on that year, we had to write a little reflection paper on how we earned our mandatory service hours. This is, of course, something that's very common in Catholic schools across the country. You have to put in a certain number of hours based off of the grade that you're in, and and the work that you're doing earns you some sort of points for your religion class. But there's this hope, I think, I know, considering I was a theology teacher for five years, there's this hope that students go and do this work. They go serve food at a local food pantry, or they help stock cans at Catholic charities, or they mow the lawn of an infirmed and homebound neighbor. Whatever the work might be, that in doing it, this young person somehow becomes aware of the need to put faith faith that they're learning in the classroom, faith that they're talking about at church, faith that's hopefully deeply embedded in their heart, that they're putting this faith into action. I really saw it for the first time when I I participated in this work camp that's since become this week-long diocesan experience in my diocese that's very popular with young people. For the past few years, I've had the opportunity to go and speak at it and help the small groups go to their work sites and and learn what they're doing and, and help accompany these young people as they're doing this good work within our community. And there's something that's always fascinating, that young people sign up the moment registration opens and it fills right away. There's there's like this this overwhelming joy and excitement to go sleep on a floor, this overwhelming joy and excitement to do hard manual labor for a few days, this overwhelming excitement to get to be in community with one another talking about the work that you did that day. This isn't, of course, unique to my diocese. These work camp experiences happen every summer across the country in dioceses run by organizations. There's, of course, this huge popularity around mission trips that bring people both domestically and internationally to places where help is needed and where help can be provided. Something about helping, about serving, about going out of our way to give, it's compelling. Some would argue, I would argue, the church would argue, and I hope that you will come to see that it's being compelled by the gospel. 
it's it's being prodded on, encouraged, pushed by Christ himself, who says that he's with us always till the end of the age and commands that we go out and we spread the gospel. And, and that doesn't just mean standing on a street corner and preaching the literal gospel, reading sacred scripture. That's one way of doing it. But it, it means that we go out and we are the hands and feet of Jesus Christ, oftentimes to those in the most need, those who find themselves affected by homelessness, those who can't pay their bills, those who need a place to stay, a warm meal for the night, maybe even just a person to look at them and have a conversation with them. It means that, that we work and advocate for justice, that we defend the dignity of human life, that we care for those who find themselves not just down on their luck, which is just this colloquial phrase, but, but desperately in need of help. And we find ourselves in a position to be the one who gives that help, who provides that aid. This new series that we are launching with Ave Explorers, Faith in Action, is really perfectly suited, I think, not only for this moment in human history, but also really for our hearts as a church right now, who most of us have been very far away from our church parishes for a few months because of the coronavirus pandemic. And there's been this, this theme that's cropped up amongst Catholics, at least amongst my own friends, that sure, the church doors had to close to keep us safe, but that just meant that the church was mobilized in a new way to help and to give and to provide, to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. In 1998, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops created a framework to discuss Catholic social teaching. And, and that's kind of the formal way of, of putting what we're doing in this series on faith in action, Catholic social teaching. They wrote a document, Sharing Catholic Social Teaching, the Challenges and Directions. And there were seven key themes that the bishops identified that, that very much have driven the way we've developed this series, the content, the guests, the articles, the videos. Those seven themes are very simple, probably things that you have heard and probably even work that you have done before. Life and dignity of the human person, call to family, community, and participation, rights and responsibilities, option for the poor and vulnerable, the dignity of work and the rights of workers, solidarity, and care for God's creation. In this upcoming series, which we're introducing to you with this episode, we're going to unpack what faith in action looks like. And here's why I'm really excited about this series. We're not just going to say, okay, well, here's how to care for the dignity of human life. Here's how to care for God's creation. Here's what you need to do to make sure that there's a dignity to work. We're, we're telling you the stories of men and women who are doing this work and learning from their lived experiences of bringing the gospel, of being the gospel, of living faith in action. Our first episode was, of course, last week with Dr. Scott Hahn, where we talked kind of big picture about how doing work like this, living our faith and putting it into action, prepares us for a good and holy death and allows us to participate in the resurrection. This week, we're blessed to have with us Father Kevin Sandberg, 
the executive director of the Center for Social Concerns at the University of Notre Dame. And Father Sandberg sits down with me and, you know, he's a Holy Cross priest, a congregation of the Holy Cross priest. Uh, He's a man who has taught coursework as well as has done the work of enacting the, the church's social teaching. He's someone who can teach us the big picture of, of how this work is necessary, of why this work is important, of how advocating for the common good and, and working to, to preserve, defend, enact, and, and, and live the common good actually helps us to end this weird phenomenon in our culture, this social isolation and oppression that is probably amplified at this particular moment more than ever before. This, of course, as you know, with all of our shows, is, is part of our, our big series that you can access all of the content for over on AveMariaPress.com. We have articles, we have videos, we have podcasts. This time around, we have some new things that we've included in the series, some, some opportunities to learn about saints, some showcases of people who are doing really great work in this arena of the church, as well as these cool Facebook Lives, which are really kind of like a live podcast with some special guests who are going to come on and share their stories. You can find all of that, the links, the articles, Sign up to receive the emails right to your inbox over at AveMariaPress.com. Without further ado, I bring to you today a conversation with Father Kevin Sandberg about advocating for the common good. Father Kevin, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Katie. It's great to be with you. So tell us a little bit about yourself, where you are, where you are right now, what you're doing. Um, and, and how you came to be there. I will. Though I want to tell you that I um, have always wanted to get to New Orleans. I know you're not in New Orleans. <laughs> but I got as close as I could to you in Lake Charles by getting to New Orleans last summer. Oh, wonderful. It was for a classmate's funeral, a classmate's mother's funeral. Okay. And um, that was very meaningful. Um, it was her time. But um, it was the whole affair of New Orleans. Oh, yeah. But um, the, the parade, and well, I say parade. We call everything a parade, but the procession, yeah, the procession and, the, yeah. and the committal, the um, two masses, and then lunch at the commander's palace or something. Oh yeah, like that, that would mm-hmm. that would be a, a common place. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was um, right across the street from Lafayette Cemetery. Oh wow, where she and the family um, tomb is. So I uh, got my beignet. <laughs> there you go. On that time. <laughs> And really got a flare or the flare of New Orleans and, and the South. And so um, I'm up here in South Bend. I teach at the University of Notre Dame, and I've been doing this for the last six years. I got a doctorate later in life in religious education from Fordham University. And one of the things that I've learned over the course of time is that I have probably taught let's say 10 different levels of religious education Hmm. from kindergarten all the way to continuing education with senior citizens, let's say in a parish setting, but taught a little bit of high school also worked with young adults in youth ministry and uh, taught seventh grade confirmation on the worst day and time you could ever imagine. 9am on a Saturday Oh, 9 a.m. on a Saturday morning. I was going to say I was in seventh grade when 9-11 happened. That would be a rough day to do it. But yeah, oh, yeah 9 o'clock on a Saturday is rough. <laughs> Could you imagine? Yeah. 
So I was thankful that I was reading um, C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce then because I had a metaphor like we're all on this bus trip and we're trying to get out of hell. Yeah. No, I can. Do you have a favorite age group or a least favorite age group? Maybe it's a better way of putting it. Young adults in their latter 20s. Mm, Okay. And that's appropriate. Yeah. Well, it's because the executive functionality is more fully formed by 25. And I worked in young adult ministry as a lay person before I came into the congregation of Holy Cross. So I was a banker in Chicago. And on my side time, though I had um, already explored theological education, I uh, put that to use in ministry. And we ran faith enrichment volunteer opportunities and social gatherings. Um, 24 years later, it's still standing, which is pretty amazing, mm-hmm. at a vibrant parish in Chicago on the north side. And, you know, most people, as they graduate from college, if they're going to land in a place like that of Chicago, they just love the fact that they've got a job, money to spend, and friends to spend it with. And so they're not thinking a lot about their future when they're 20 two, 23, just out of college. When they're 25, they start singing this old Peggy Lee song. Is that all there is? (laughs) What do they want to do for the rest of their lives? And that's when they really took this young adult community offering very seriously. So it was a real discernment place for uh, young adults. But I also have taught graduate immersion social justice seminars. And in sort of the surprise of my own teaching time here at Notre Dame, I have been to Haiti three times and fell in love with it, uh, to Uganda, to Cuba, to the Holy Land, and to uh, led a course to Detroit also, mm-hmm. all in search of practices of the common good. So that's been um, a part of my journey right there. Is that what drew you to the, the congregation, the, the Holy Cross ministry and, and mission work that they do? Is that really what was attractive about it rather than diocesan priesthood? You know, I never considered diocesan priesthood because I'm from South Florida and I was in as an adult in Chicago with, as an adopted hometown, mm-hmm. but it was principally a move toward being an educator. Oh, wow. Okay. So in Holy Cross, we refer to ourselves as educators in faith and it's a men's and women's congregation overall, but in my community of men, talk about it as being men with hope to bring one of the beautiful things in that kind of ministry of teaching is that you find hope mm-hmm. in your students and you find hope in the writers that you introduce your students to and you find hope in the community partners that your students are interested in working with mm-hmm. and so hope to bring I suppose I have some that's um, residual from all the interactions but I'm um, hope to garner is a little more of what I have experienced. Yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, I, I love that, that it's a, you're bearers of hope and witnesses to it in yeah, witnesses, all of the work you do. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that immersion course that you teach then. Um, what's <laughs> yeah. that about? It's about helping students who have focused on a disciplinary interest because they're graduate students, right? Of adopting the common good as a principle for both their personal lives as well as their discipline and their career trajectory. So as you can imagine, as we go along in our educational uh, careers, we increasingly narrow the focus. Mm -hmm. I remember when I was doing my MDiv, a person getting their PhD 
from the theology department. And the person said, well, now I know Psalm 72, right? That's how narrow and specialized our work can become. So if this world is going to find the common good and live by it, well, maybe the disciplines in an academy and in higher education are representative of all the different perspectives. Mm -hmm. The historical perspective, the engineering perspective, the arts, the sciences. And it takes all of them to come together to uncover the common good. So we went on an exploration to have local communities in places like Haiti and Uganda demonstrate to us what practices they were employing for the common good. Mm -hmm. So there was both an immersion into a context where the common good practices are. And as we do that, we're pretty, we become increasingly conscious of our own practices toward the common good. So the students would learn some theology, but they would also learn other disciplines and what's necessary for this sum total to be greater than its parts. Mm -hmm. And then for people to be able to work more effectively together. I mean, that is a common denominator to human experience that we um, seek and that um, can be productive, but it's even more so people coming together who used to be far apart. Maybe that's a better way of even describing the common good. Mm-hmm. And when that's, it's something that I think we all, we know that term, right? Common good. We fight for yes. the common good right now. And in, in the time of COVID-19, you wear a mask for the common good. That's right. But, but what's a, What's a simple way to explain that to someone who maybe says, well, I don't, I don't know what that means. I fight for myself. I protect my own rights or I only care about me. The simplest way is to say that my good is bound up in your good. Okay. The good of all people and the good of the whole person is part of a network of the good of the other person. Mm-hmm. And that actually becomes very prominent when you think about the way in which Pope Francis in Laudato Si has introduced us into ecological thinking. Yeah. We all live in an interdependent network. So maybe an even more simpler way is to say, well, there's an interdependence among us. Mm-hmm. My good is tied to your good. Right. And without the recognition, we won't be able to get as far as God intends us in the kingdom. Yeah. When, when I read Laudato Si for the first time, I was, I was deeply challenged when he started talking about air conditioning because I live in, you know, the deep South where we're running it at 68 most of the summer. And so my husband and I said, you know what, we're going to kick it up to 70 and run the fans and like, sure, it's just two degrees, but maybe that helps us lessen our footprint just a little bit. And that, you know, it makes a difference in the long run if everybody tries to do that. Um, Speaking of Pope Francis, and you mentioned this in your article for this first week of Ave Explorers, he talks about some, you know, fighting for this common good in some sense is us entering into a field hospital of sorts. That's yes. an analogy that is used a few times. Can you unpack that for us, explain that for us from a, an academic and a pastoral perspective? Yeah. So one of the things I think that you've touched upon in the context of the common good is what the Pope is trying to address And that is the social isolation that people feel. And we have increasingly become balkanized societies. We know by zip code, for instance, people's longevity of life. And so I think the power of this metaphor is both that Jesus is a healer and the church ought to be, and that it identifies that there is uh, illness out there. 
And the illness actually results from the way in which we've lived our lives. There's something even before that I would point to that um, recommends this. And I think Pope Francis realized that Pope, well, in St. John Paul II and Pope Benedict prepared the ground as well as they could in their time. And each generation, each papacy has as its responsibility to determine what's the platform on which we stand and where do we see from here. So John Paul II made it an important concern of the church to codify the catechism in a way that showed his um, concern that uh, a fallen away generation of Catholics be recatechized. Then Pope Benedict talked in terms of the uh, de-Christianization of Europe mm-hmm. and how it would lose its future if it lost its roots in the Christian message and, and Christian institutions for that matter. But Pope Francis has said in this time, and there's no blame in this, right? A time of secularization, a time of pluralism, a time in which the church is looking for new resources to understand itself so that its evangelization can continue. What Pope Francis has said is that before we we uh, re-catechize fallen away Catholics, before we re-christen Europe, we have to allow the church to be evangelized itself. And that's what he's really describing in Evangelicaudia. And the margins are evangelizing the church mm-hmm. or and the vulnerable, those who have suffered, whether it is through the degradation of the environment or the um, misuse of, uh, of the human person. Those are the people that the church looks to, to be reminded of who we are. Mm-hmm. They're the socially isolated people. And they're the ones who can teach the church, you know, this is who you were called to be. I am the voice of God here. Here's where the spirit is moving. So this image of the field hospital is sending out sort of, to um, use the same metaphor, um, these medical cores that we become much more missionary when we realize we have to go out from this stronghold of a center that we have tried to reinforce in all sorts of ways out into the field where people are isolated, where they are injured. I think of Mother Teresa when she came to the United States and she visited Phoenix in the hotness of it. She asked to go and be brought to the people who lived in the hovels. And somebody had told her that there were people who live in the ravines. And that's where she wanted to go and draw them out. That's the field hospital. I mean, the missionaries of charity are really well known for setting up a field hospital in a place where people have been neglected and taking the neglected in. So that begins, I think, to unpack it. What it says to all of us is that we have to go through medical training. Essentially, yeah. As disciples. And we have to think about the fact that, look, We have certain levels of expertise and each of us can work at a pastoral level. Each of us can work at a triage level. Mm -hmm. And those isolated folks aren't as far away as we think 
that they are. Right. They're not necessarily only in the next zip code. Mm -hmm. So I think that the power of the metaphor is appealing because every one of us has suffered an illness and we have had somebody tending to us. Now it's our opportunity to show that since we have been given away, we've been tended to, we can tend to others. Yeah. I hope you are enjoying this conversation with Father Kevin Sandberg. I know I certainly enjoyed interviewing him. His insights, especially about this metaphor from Pope Francis, I think are encouraging and inspiring. And if you are enjoying this conversation about the work of social justice and putting our faith into action, I'd encourage you to click on over to AveMariaPress.com and sign up for the entire Faith in Action series. You'll get all of the articles, the videos, new podcast episodes that will be dropping on Wednesdays and sometimes on Fridays when we have bonus episodes. And we hope that you'll follow along with all of the content that we have crafted and put together with experts who are out in the field doing this good work. Just as a little bit of a preview, this Friday we have a special episode with Father Josh Johnson and Sister Josephine Garrett about ending racism within our world, within our church, and within our own hearts. So click on over to AveMariaPress.com to find all of this excellent content. Well, it's, it's beautiful that you're talking about, it's not beautiful that there's social isolation, but that we can acknowledge it and that we can recognize that everybody's circumstances are, are different. And that if we only ever see what my circumstance is, then I, I can never share or love or be loved by someone who's in a different circumstance. I, I a few summers ago, I, um, I led the, like the, it's a work camp for the Diocese of Arlington. So like 800 young people gather together. Uh-huh. Um, they pay money to sleep on a floor in a high school and basically go into people's houses and work. So they're building wheelchair ramps. And these are very popular across the country, of course. Yep. And at the end of the week, some of the people that have been helped throughout the course of this full experience come to like this big celebration. And the point of it is not for them to, you know, thank all the teenagers. It's just for all of the teenagers and all of the volunteers and and even the people that have been helped to see this great community that's been formed. Um, And it's so, it was so profound to sit there and watch Christians and non-Christians alike talk about what it meant to have five teenage boys come and clean out a garage or what it was like for, there was a World War II veteran who had his roof replaced by one of the, the older young adult groups who can climb on top of roofs because of, you know, insurance purposes. And to have yeah. Sam stand up and say that he hadn't had conversations with anybody but the person that delivered his groceries for weeks until these yeah. young men got there. And it, it wasn't so much the roof anymore. It was then, it was just the experience of humans loving each other. And, and that, I think, is something that Francis is trying to articulate here. Well, and, you know, you've touched on something that is deep in the human psyche because even in the Greek city-states, the movement of democracy felt the importance of this um, connection between people, right? We think about our representative democracy in the United States as having had these Greek origins, and they do, but we have forgotten two really important parts. The first part is that in those ancient Greek societies, if you didn't get involved in public life, if you did not converse with that man who might be isolated like that, you know what you were described as? You were described as an idiotus, mm. from which word we get the term idiots or yeah. ignorant people, right? You were a private person. And if even more so, you didn't have a chance to, um, or you didn't um, um, 
if you look just to serve yourself and not other people, you were described as a parasitos, mm. a parasite. Mm. And so one of the things that the field hospital image helps us recognize is if we're not going out to tend, we might be feeding off of the people who are the most disadvantaged and yeah. the vulnerable. That's when we get to looking at structures of injustice and the systems that perpetuate them and how otherwise the field hospital actually goes into that because the field hospital isn't just palliative care. Mm -hmm. The field hospital is also a research organization that's finding out, well, why does somebody end up with this injury and what can we do yeah. to prevent that from happening? Because doctors make that kind of care. Doctors intervene and protect people from further harm. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking of our listeners and, and the people who would hear this, and they might be thinking to themselves at this point, the same way with our mental health series. Okay, so that's a great concept, and those are really nice things to say, but what do I actually do? You know, in, in 2020 in Lake Charles, Louisiana, where could my field hospital possibly be? Um, <laughs> You know, like what, what are some of the practical things in your immersion course that you're telling these grad students that they have to do within their secular lives, within their faith lives, which are supposed to be integrated, but like what's one practical thing we could do? Yeah, and I'll, I'll use my undergraduate teaching as an example here <laughs> because it struck me that, and these are really well-prepared students mm -hmm. and they get very good job offers. So it's not a stretch that they're, gonna go to Brooklyn and all live this wonderful life where they've got uh, fair trade coffee here and um, fair trade chocolate there and organically uh, grown wine. And they're just gonna make sure that, well, sure enough, I treat the earth with respect. But you want those students to be able to understand, well, what is a social enterprise like? Mm -hmm. And more and more of them, want to know how they can make this very same contribution, whether they're going to be in Lake Charles or in Brooklyn. And I think this metaphor of a social enterprise is what comes after the field hospital. Mm -hmm. So if we thought about ourselves as entrepreneurial in the spirit, then what we would do is we'd be establishing more long-term connections with people. And the most important thing is for us to allow our inhibitions and our fears to be um, set aside. So I think where we um, make our first best step isn't to create something new, but it's to piggyback on top of what somebody else has already done. Mm. And the most amazing thing when you're in parish ministry, you see this, is that there are so many unsung heroes there are the St. Vincent de Paul Society people who are there on Saturday morning. They're making sure that people's rent is getting paid. They're making sure that somebody has the food that they need. Mm -hmm. They're making sure that somebody has the transportation that they need. And it's five people that are running it. And they like to do their own thing. They're problem fixers. They get people going. But if we piggyback on top of them, then the parish becomes a social enterprise that leads to social regeneration. Yeah. So I think the first step is for us to piggyback on top of what somebody else has done. And that's the religious educator in me. It's traditioning. Yeah. People pass it on in that way. 
we can innovate from within that um, experience, but we first have to be introduced to the network that already exists because people are getting by one way or another. Yeah. I think the second thing is that um, we have to let the people who are um, in need the most uh, take the lead. Uh, we can't force anything on people. Mm-hmm. We have to respond to them. And this word respond is really important for us. So the more we pay attention to the word that we're responding, the more we're in the spirit because uh, we have a responsibility, we think, to somebody. Um, we don't want to assume responsibility for someone. Our responsibility to someone means that we are already in some kind of a relationship with them. We're bound or vowed to them. The, the root of that word responsibility is re spondeo, and spondeo is a vow. It's a, it's a, it's a bond, and so we want to reaffirm it. And so what you want to do is reaffirm for somebody who might appear in that social isolation that they are bound to the human community. Mm-hmm. They are part of it and we are bound to them. And we change as much as they might be looking for change themselves. So part of the answer is uh, surfacing all mm-hmm. the things that are going on behind the scenes all the secret things that people are doing on their own Mm -hmm. and making that a collective so that people do look at a parish as a social enterprise, regenerating society after it goes through devastations, whether that's the recession from 2008 or uh, the COVID-19 depression of sorts. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're talking about that, and I'm thinking of Bishop Walk, who is a, a Holy Cross priest over in Florida, and, and how he was boots on the ground after Hurricane Michael, you know, and there's, there's pictures of him in, in literal white shrimping boots out there looking at the damage in parish communities, the damage to people's homes, and it, it wasn't so much a, okay, yeah, we'll write some checks to fix this, but it was a, okay, how can we, how can we work together to help heal this community as a whole, I, I can't help but think that that was a very unique CSC response in some sense. I hope so. talk. Um, and I would say too, not unique in the history of the church, mm-hmm. but trying to work out of the example of it. And we call that acts, the mm-hmm. acts of the apostles, they shared all they had in common, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And they sold their possessions. And that's um, a metaphor alongside of the field hospital that should inform us as to how to, how to uh, make that difference that we want to see happen. You mentioned earlier St. Vincent de Paul um, and Mother Teresa, who I think in the, in the history of the church are names that are recognizable. Yeah. Who, you know, we often talk how the, the holiness is lived in a variety of ways. And the way yeah. I'm going to help somebody at the margins is going to be different than how you will, but we're both still going. Who are some of the saints that might have inspired you in this in this education with young people and, and having conversations about this with them all the way to the work that you've done in, in the field hospitals of the world yourself. Who's, who's been that holy man or woman that has really anchored you? You know, I'm going to um, give you one certified saint and another who, let's hope she's not a saint because I hope she's not deceased, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> a holy woman. Uh, and there are many others that would be in there. But especially having brought these graduate students around the world, it made a lot of sense of my own 
um, uh, you know, affinity and devotion to Teresa Lisieux. Mm. Uh, maybe most people know that she wanted to be a missionary, but she was relegated not just to the Carmel, but also to a bed mm-hmm. with tuberculosis. Um, others might know that she also wanted to be a priest. Well, that was a bridge way too far <laughs> in the time she was living. Um, so what's powerful about Therese is that she said, well, I will, um, with this vocation of love, make um, a shower of roses fall upon God's creation. And I do think that she does that. But what I love about her is that she was in a contemplative community, but there was action there also. Mm-hmm. And so this notion of faith and action isn't simply running around doing things. Faith, I think we have to understand is the gift. We know that, but we have to think about it more concretely as God's um, spirit inhabiting us. And it uh, manifests itself in all sorts of ways. And so for Therese, faith and action was writing. Faith in Action was writing her memoir, her biography, under assignment. Faith in Action was writing in correspondence to missionaries. Mm-hmm. Faith in Action may be the patronage she offers priests, since she herself wanted to be one that way. So that's the way in which she really was very respective of her vocation. And she was such a precocious youth, and she went to the ends of the church to Rome to become a religious sooner rather than later, that's a powerful demonstration of faith and action right there, even though it looks like, well, she ended up being a contemplative, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, The other saint for me is uh, deputy nurse matron, Josephine Salu, who was profiled during the Ebola outbreak Mm. in Sierra Leone. And upon reflecting of the hardships, which included many of the nurse charges assigned to her dying, um, her own children begging her not to go back to the hospital, other nurses returning home and finding all their belongings packed and uh, in a suitcase outside the door. She reflected, um, maybe I should have chosen secretarial. I remember her being quoted saying, she says, but, Um, God chose me to be a healer and this is where I belong. And we see that in COVID-19 right now, how many medical personnel have persisted in their job? How many people have volunteered Mm -hmm. putting themselves on the front line as it were in that way? That's holiness. That is everything. That's action also too, right? Nurse Selu is acting in the hospital and she's trying to keep people's fears at bay at the same time that she's trying to nurse people back to life. That's a powerful witness. And I, I think that those two make a powerful combination of what this faith in action means, right? One who wanted to be a missionary, a priest, really active in the French church, and ends up being perhaps one of the most active saints of the 20th century, mm-hmm. right? And we're talking about just about people's devotion. We don't even know all the miracles that she's wrought for us. 
And then secondarily, uh, Josephine Selu and real action, but with contemplation on it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, what's really powerful in both those cases is that these are reflective women. But I think that one of the things that they help us think about is to be the best disciples, we have to reflect on our action. And that reaffirms our faith. It's a way to remind us that we have this as a gift. Mm-hmm. But it isn't just reflecting on action as if it was reflection after the fact. It's reflection in action. Mm-hmm. We have to be mindful that in our action, we're reflecting this gift that we've received. We're reflecting the spirit. And we demonstrate who God wants us to be and who the world ought to see when we do that. And so reflection in action, we are reflecting the spirit in our action. It may be more contemplative writing and supporting in that way. It may be very active healing Mm -hmm. and um, forestalling um, uh, anxiety. But both of those require not just reflection on action, but reflection in action. That's a beautiful way to say it. I think that might be the title of the episode. (laughs) Reflection in action is is really the only way to work in that field hospital, the only way to, to embody the whole theme of this series, which is faith in action. Yeah, I agree. And I think that um, we will be less intimidated when we realize that it's the spirit working. Right. And we are simply a reflection of God's spirit. Yeah. Yeah. We're not the ones that are victorious necessarily. That's why there's so many unsung heroes, because they recognize that they are cooperating with God's movement. And parents are doing it every single day. Spouses are doing it every single day. Siblings are doing it every single day. And when we reflect on that happening, then we begin to think, wait, there's more to this. And then we reflect in it. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. I think that's that's a perfect place to stop. Um, thank you for your time, Father. Where can we find more about you and your work and follow along with, with some of your writings and your thoughts? Oh, they're all here. So, um, <laughs> you need a podcast. <laughs> yeah, I... I famously once made uh, an advent calendar um, and that came to an end after nine years. But um, mostly it's been interpersonal in the classrooms as well as uh, preaching. So I appreciate that. If I come up with something that's worthy (laughs) of otherwise publication, I'll let you know. Awesome. Well, we will, we'll link to uh, a couple of the articles that we have on you that we researched that I, I dug up. I did my millennial stalking that was necessary to learn oh, about good. you. Um, I'm sorry I hadn't expunged my history. Oh, no, 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 no. I, I Like I said, the congregation's my favorite. So thank you again for your time. We are so grateful. Thank you, Katie, and thank you to all the listeners. Peace be with you all. I don't know about you, but I'm encouraged by the insights and the wisdom of Father Sandberg. Um, I'm ready to go do some work. I'm ready to go put myself out there and help to end social isolation, to get that that training that I need to go into this field hospital and, and to be someone who can love the other. Our entire Faith in Action series is about this. We have pieces and articles from from men and women who work within parishes and organizations. We have videos from the Franciscan Friars of the Renewal, from Michael Gormley of Catching Foxes fame about prison ministry. We have a, a special inspirational homily of sorts from Archbishop Nelson Perez in Philadelphia. 
We have podcasts coming with the Sisters of Life, again with Father Josh Johnson and Sister Josephine Garrett this Friday. Conversations with people who have been on the front lines of immigration work and working with the poor and the impoverished in other countries. Really, this series, of which I'm very proud, we've created at Ave Maria Press because we want to show our subscribers and our listeners, we want to show all of you the good work that's happening and inspire you to do good work yourself, to care about those seven principles laid out of what Catholic social teaching is, to go be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ in the ways that you uniquely can. What I'm, I'm most inspired by with this series and what I'm most excited about is the fact that you, the listeners and the subscribers, will have the opportunity to, to really see how it's done and to hear the stories of people who are doing it and to recognize that anyone can and it's so essential that we all try to put our faith into action. You can click over to AveMariaPress.com to find all of this excellent content, to sign up for the free emails, to be entered into an awesome giveaway with some excellent, excellent stuff from, from different uh, makers and creators and artists. Um, so find that over on the Ave Maria Press website. We, of course, as always, make an appeal to you to please rate and subscribe um, to this show. Ratings help us get more notice by listeners, and, and subscriptions, of course, mean that you'll get that episode right into your phone as soon as it drops. So we'd be grateful for that rating and grateful for that subscription and, and grateful for a share if you liked what you heard this week. So go over to IvanMariaPress.com, find all of the content that we've created for you, and tune in this Friday for a special episode with Sister Josephine Garrett and Father Josh Johnson. Thanks for listening.